Saraya. Dona Mor. Omofoto. Cibubur. Jakarta. Jakarta. Just for recreation sake. And to be passing the time away. It's so fun. Love me. Enjoy yourself today. Jakarta boys are hard to beat. Welcome to the Bintangs at 25, Perpetuating the Myth, Episode 3. My name's Ben Giles. I'm the, the president of the Jakarta Bintangs. Uh, welcome all. I'm once again joined by three legends of the club, three um, players and uh, club officials that really shaped the club and, and uh, the legacy lives on today. Um, so let's get into welcoming them all. And um, it's, a, it's a long list of accolades for these gentlemen. The first one is a three-time BJ Morgan Best and Ferris winner. Um, he was actually the inaugural winner of the runner-up award as well, which is great and named after him. Uh, captain for three, two or three years, uh, 99 to 2001, and six to eight. Coach for three years in 2003 to five. All Asian 2000 and 2003. Life member number eight. Golden headband winner in 2007. We will probably touch on that a bit later. Um, and in the team of the do a decade, uh, vice captain and playing in the guts, uh, none other than Matt Stevens. Welcome, Matt. Thank you. Great to see you, mate. Thanks for the invitation. Likewise, mate. Thank you for joining all the way from DC. Um, our next uh, guest is uh, another club legend, uh, club legend from 2002. I think he was in Jakarta for around, uh, what, three or four years, maybe? A bit of a goal sneak, a leading goal kicker in 2000, um, and uh, a, a general shaper um, and a wonderful speaker at the club functions as well. Sean Kenahan, six, welcome. Hey, Benny. And uh, final, last but not least, is uh, he was captain for three years. He was vice captain as well. Captain in 2004 to five, vice captain. He was a um, very, quite a well-known property steward uh, um, by, the, by the looks of things as well. He was a Matt Stevens Award winner in 2002, All Asian in, in 2003, um, and is life member number 12, um, none other than Mark Chatters Chadwick. Welcome, Chatters. Thanks, Ben. So I might just uh, kick it off, guys. Um, you know, there's, as you know, in episode one, we, we talked about, you know, the first few years of the, the, the formation of the club um, um, the fun times and the difficult environment and, and just generally how we built that club. The second episode, we looked at really the launch of the club and, and, and the efforts that people such as yourselves put into, um, you know, the competition, but then building the backbone and the foundations of the club as well, which we'll talk about. But first of all, if we could just introduce ourselves, um, for those that don't know you, um, just a little bit about when you came to Jakarta, how long were you were here, and uh, and what brought you to the club? I'll start with Stevo, and then uh, and then probably Sean, and then Chatters. Yeah, so I, I was in Indonesia from '98 to uh, 2008. I had a year back in Oz, 2001, 2002. Uh, initially working at, at the Australian Embassy for a few years, and then after I came back uh, from a year study, I, I joined the World Bank. Um, so so nine years living there and then moved on to the Philippines for another nine years. And I was coming back and forth for a few years, uh, still playing the odd game, probably for another four or five years after I left Jakarta and certainly still attending grand final functions too. 
And, and you, what got me around to the club? Honestly, I can't remember. Um, I think there might have been a guy, Captain Dan, at the, at the embassy had mentioned there was a footy team. But, you know, I was on the lookout. Uh, I was only 26 when I arrived and I was fresh from playing footy in Oz. And so I was hoping there was a team. So I was definitely on active looking lookout. And I think Captain Dan might have dragged me along back then. I think I recall meeting you in probably one of my last games and my first stint here was probably around 99, I think, when you when you first came. It was that that game against Singapore, I think, one of those sort of times. Maybe 98. Yeah, there was a, the game when you got you kicked nine goals against the Navy and they still gave me BOG. And I know I know you're still bitter about it. Um, it's okay. I'll probably probably pull out the mug if I, I might go and have a look. During the Thank break. you. Yeah, that'd be good. Well, they knew that I'd come back. They weren't sure if you would. Um, so uh, I think it was a very much a, it was a, a draw to get you back. So I think that strategy worked. It was great. Um, it was charity, saying it was charity. Yep. Over to you, Sean. I, I came to um, Jakarta in 2000. Um, I um, uh, practiced at a, at a local law firm doing um, M&A and corporate finance work and came to the club via Pete Wallace um, being a client, Pete Wallace being a client of our firm. And um, that, that, was, that was before we did criminal work. Um, but Pete, Pete was a client of the firm and um, uh, I, I met him and uh, when he heard my accent, he invited me out to play cricket with Rebels. So I actually started by playing cricket with the Rebels um, and using that beautiful juke ball at Chibabore, which was an absolute dream for someone who'd grown up bowling a um, straight barrel kookaburra on dry decks in Adelaide. So, um, and it really went from there. And I think, um, I think my foundation, uh, the foundation of my role as, as the full forward came when I, um, I was announced at training as this is Sticks Kernahan from South Australia. Now, there might have been um, some, some misinterpretation when I, I put forward my credentials, but it stuck. And uh, I managed to play uh, full forward for the duration of my career, the majority of which required me just to stay out of the way of Tomo. That was pretty much my role uh, at full forward. Uh, and, to watch, uh, and to watch kicks from um, uh, Matt Stevens, Mark Chadwick, Rob Spur and the like just sailed straight over my head as I burst out of the blocks 10 metres in the clear to create space in the goal square, of course. But anyway, more on that later. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Sean, over All, to you. Always uh, selfless, mate. Always selfless. And we were just waiting for uh, when the name Wally came up and it was it was probably within the first five minutes and uh, there were there are some bets going around as to whether it was going to be Wally or Baldy. So uh, for those who put money on Wally, you won. Uh, well, associated with legal concerns, it was always going to be Wally, wasn't it? <laughs> Yeah, Baldy, Baldy's more in the nature of Interpol, I think, now, Matt. But anyway, over to you, Chatters. Well, I, I'm thinking Detachment 88 myself, but... I, I moved to Jakarta at the beginning of 2000. Um, I was working with an Australian restructuring firm. I uh, was there through till uh, 2007 before moving on to China. Um, Interestingly enough, I was introduced to the Vintangs by Wally as well. Um, and I must admit, I was a bit hesitant about getting involved. I hadn't played, you know, competitive uh, sport, let alone international sport for, um, 
for many, many years. Um, and that first training session, uh, getting a lift home with uh, with Wally and a an unnamed person from the uh, Australian Embassy. Um, Wally was driving and uh, there was a funny smell. I, at first I thought it was a clove cigarette coming from the front and then uh, realised, oh, I haven't smelt that since university days. Um, yeah, I was hooked on the Bintangs after that. It was, uh, that was my introduction to the Bintangs. <laughs> Let's have a competition to guess who, who that embassy representative was. It wasn't <laughs> me, I might add, but I'm pretty confident I know who it was. So if we we can rewind back to around the two thousand era, um, and and I, Sean, um, Matt, you can probably uh, divulge a bit more on the on the foundation building of the club. Um, but certainly um, after I left, things certainly changed, and there was some structure put in. Um, and you know the you know what was formed is the you know pretty much has carried through to the what the club is today and what we try to hold on to. So, um, you know, that the famed AGMs, the grand final functions, there's a bit of a, uh, there's a legend around them all. And how did it really all, all start up? Well, I think, you know, when I arrived, there wasn't much going on, right? We played one or two games a year. Uh, we didn't train much. Um, and, and to be honest, I, you know, I wasn't particularly interested in getting involved other than, than playing. Um, but then you had, you know, the grand final function, which which you and, and Volky and, and Timmy and, and Rob got going in 98. Suddenly the money started coming in. Um, I, I got dragged along to a committee meeting. And I have to say, you know, having been involved in, in amateur sport back in Oz, I was I was quite taken aback by the quality of individual running the bin tanks. You know, so you had you had guys like Timmy Hackford, who was a you know, very successful businessman. You had Kenny Allen, who was like a partner at KPMG. Yeah, Bulky was a COO at you know a big mining company. Stewie Fraser was a CFO. Rob Spur, CFO. I was a bit taken aback. I thought I was a bunch of drunken expat clowns. And I'm like, actually, these guys are fucking smart, and they know what they're doing. So once we got a little bit of money, I think there was a vision put together as to as to what we could achieve. So let, let's try to expand numbers. Um, I think the thing that really appealed to me was the club wanted to engage with, with the community, you know, so how can we get Indonesian people in, in playing? Um, you know, we very early on uh, had a social program, a charity program working with ANZA and then, then uh, with other organizations later on. So just thought, you know, here, here's a group of people who, who don't just want to play footy, they want to put together, you know, because we weren't very good at footy and we've never been very good at footy. So if that were our reason on venture, it would be a total failure. It's like, how do we turn this into, you know, a bit of a, I don't want to overstate it, like a social movement where, you know, that opens up to people and gives them an outlet in a place which is not the easiest place to live in, but where we can also, you know, contribute to the community. So I think, you know, those grand final functions were just uh, phenomenal and, and got big money coming into the sponsorship and, you know, from things just grew from there. And, and I think to, to Matt's point, Ben, about um, wanting to be more than a football club, it was really important for the time. So, so when I arrived in 2000, as Matt said, you, you already had a, a, a vision for the club and you had some high caliber people sitting around it, applying their collective acumen to all of that. But at the time, it, it was really politically tense. I mean, post 9-11 in particular, it was an incredibly tense place to live. 
And it's fair to say that as an expatriate community, you know, you could feel a bit more isolated. And that meant it, it, it created a greater uh, push, I think, to draw people together. While we were struggling with um, Indonesia's social evolution, struggling in a different language environment, struggling with different cultural behaviours, even, 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 um, and, 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 you know, the, the evolution of, of what, um, what Islam meant in, in Indonesia, while all these things were happening, um, it was important for us grappling with that, with one side of your brain to be able to go somewhere and rest. And there was nowhere better than the football club where you could just be quintessentially Australian and you could let off steam and behave in a way that was, you were comfortable being, being very Australian. And I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to express it well, but I think for many of us, it was a stressful life. Even just navigating in Jakarta is stressful. To be able to go somewhere where people speak the same language, where you can just let off steam, where you can reflect on your challenges, and it wouldn't be too much time reflecting on the challenges of your workday, but where there was a sense of community, collegiality, and that we could all get through this together, I thought the football club did an amazing job to create that environment. And so the job really from there was to harness that and build it. And that's exactly what, you know, what, what a group of leaders did um, off the field. And that then led, of course, to more people being drawn to the club, more sponsors being drawn to the club, greater resources, more community involvement, greater sense of purpose. That brought more players, that brought more structure, that brought on-field success. And um, we can talk about what some of the pillars were, but I think the environment in 2000, certainly, and, and it may have been, you know, even before then, but certainly when I arrived in 2000, my sense was the environment was right for that outlet, that haven for people to come to. And that was, that was very much the sense of what I think was created. You know, it, it was done. It was done with class. You know, you know, Robbie Spur. You know, with the videos in in '98 and, and and thereafter. I mean, people just thought, "Here's a bunch of guys with a sense of humour." Uh, and I think it was more Robbie's like, Let, "Let's just pretend we're a real football club." So the first AGM, we booked the boardroom at the at the at the Region Hotel, the Four Seasons now, and, and made it black time just for no reason other than we never, no one's ever going to invite us to a boardroom to wear black tie at a football club in Australia because we're all hacks. So there we are, all dressed up in black tie in the fucking boardroom at the Regent Hotel. Like, but it was fun. So, okay, let's just keep going. Let's just keep pretending that we're a real club. You know, then Sean gave it a name, you know, perpetuate the myth, and then we had it translated into Latin. Um, and it, it kind of grew from there. But, it, you know, as Sean said, because it was done with class, people were drawn to the club. And, I, you know, it was a, it's actually one of the, perhaps the only footy club I ever played for that I was actually quite proud to represent. Remember one day I was in, in an elevator with, with Rob and we were going over to footy training and uh, some old lady said, hey, you boys are with the Bintangs, are you? It was the first time in my life I felt proud and saying, yeah, there yeah, we are, you know, because the club, you know, had a, had a touch of class about the way we did things, even though we were also um, kind of a bunch of drunken idiots as well, which might be a good segue to Chatty. Yeah, and I... I think the footy cards are a testament to that as well. You know, being a um, 
you know, classy operation, the Bintangs, that was um, yes, one of my fondest memories. Um, look, for me, it was that sense of community that um, once you experience that, um, it, it, you know, it just drew you in and uh, having that place to escape from the pressures of everyday uh, life of, in, in Jakarta was, um, you, you know, it, it made a huge difference to, uh, you know, to life in, um, in the big jury. Um, I suppose that, that's the main reason why I was uh, drawn to the club and then seeing the professionalism, um, which, you know, for a small amateur club, um, you know, that was second to none. I, I certainly hadn't experienced that anyway. I, I think also, and, and also, Benny, um, the <clears throat> that that community, while obviously we're all, you know, all if it, or almost all of us, um, you know, white Anglo-Saxon males, there was there was actually a significant amount of diversity within that group. You you had you had people from a corporate background, you had people from an entrepreneurial background. You had people from very questionable backgrounds, um, and you had the lunatics. And I, I think I think um, the 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 thing was that th there was hierarchy within the club. There had to be because Tim Hackford, you know, is the alpha male in any group of of, of men. And so Tim was the self-appointed president for life. And there it's was club, a hierarchy. This club, yeah. yeah. This club, yeah. Th th there was a hierarchy that sprung from that. But, you know, within that hierarchy, everyone had a role and everyone was valued. So, so no matter who you were, you were valued for what you did and you were valued for what you brought. And, you know, as much structure as I would put around uh, the AGM with, you know, the formal presentation of accounts, uh -huh, with um, the, um, uh, the, the secretary's report, the president's report, the coach's report, um, I, would, I would put together PowerPoint presentations. Actually, I didn't put together. Um, my wife, Sarah Keenahan, who everyone knows is the smart one in our partnership, she, she did all of that. She brought, she brought all that to life. But um, we, we would do all that. And then by the end of the evening, you had Baldy on stage singing Bintang Men from Bintang Town, um, unstructured, unscripted, incomprehensible, but there, there was a role for everyone. And I think, I think I would say, despite the hierarchy, it was a very in inclusive environment. And that, that, that spilled onto the field. And that's where when you have great leaders on the field, who not only lead by example, but emphasize the role that others play. You know, that's why you, had, you could have a lofty Elliot playing in the forward pocket. It's why you could have Greg, Greg Parham come on for five minutes of inspirational running up and down on the spot. Um, it's, it's, it's why you can embrace people playing a role and they, that, but they were, they were as much part of the success of our club as were some of the, 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 the really outstanding players we had. I think, I think you raise a good point. You know, I, I kind of fell out of love with, with, with high level footy in, in Oz because, you know, the people who ran the show were always, always the best players, you know, kind of set the culture and everyone followed along with them. And 
they they weren't always the best people, and so I thought, you know, let, let's let's feed a club where where the good the good people are the ones who are the legends. So you know, Chris Newport can be a legend of the club, despite you know Newey will freely admit not not the most talented. I think Rob Spur once said he's the worst footballer who ever played the game, <laughs> um, which is harsh because I reckon we've seen plenty worse. But but Newey was an absolute legend at our club for years and years and years, and still is because he's just a fantastic bloke. And so I think that's probably among the many things I love about about the Ben Tangs, it's like you don't have to be a good player to be influential in our club. You just need to contribute and, and, and be a good person and enjoy yourself. And then you, we will elevate you to legend status. We will give you titles and, and, and make you make you famous because that's what matters. And I think it was inclusive. You know, we had, remember Mimi? You know, Mimi used to turn up every week. You know, she would train with us. Uh, Lord knows why. I mean, God knows what her deal was, but... Um, if you were a straight, gay, Australian, American, Indonesian, male, female, I mean, I think that was the key, that we're not playing the sheep station, so everyone should have a go. I mean, I hope, I hope other people feel that way, that we were, we we're inclusive and certainly try hard to be that way. Mm. I think... I think oh, sorry, Benny. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's perfectly put. I mean, we've all played at other clubs since, and, and one thing that I noticed in Australia and, and sort of playing across Asia is that you... There is that benchmark, and and I'd look at the Bintangs as that benchmark without without overemphasising it necessarily. But it was certainly um, this rare quality of having this sort of uh, some structure and professionalism, yet this chronic self-deprecating humour and not taking ourselves too seriously. Um, many other clubs you go to are the complete opposite, are they? They're, it's a little amateurish. And they don't take, and then they take themselves way too seriously as well. And that's where the that's where the you get the the fault lines and the and the clicks and everything like that. And just going back to the, I mean, when you're saying club legends, just looking at some of the the list of some of these legends, um, most of them are not particularly good footballers, but they've been elevated to club legend status. And um, I know present company accepted. Pre present them. company accepted. Yeah, uh, me to it. One of them, yeah. uh, you know, it's a, a, a true highlight um, of their time here is is probably being recognised by the club for the for the contribution that they put in. I think I think also Ben, um, when um, when you talk about um, you know the the hubris the hubris that that we used to go on with, um, I, I think we took the view there's no point just doing wonderful things, we should celebrate them. And um, it's, it's, great, it's great to be able to do great things, but it's, it's an incredibly wonderful and enriching thing to be able to celebrate them. And we are unashamedly about celebrating success or even perceived success. Um, and it wasn't imagined success, we did have success. It, it really wasn't until the Asian champs when we won that first one um that we that we came up with the concept of asia's most successful football club and the data didn't lie we were at 100 arguably yeah and, and that was the other that was the other trick matt you're right it, it's one thing to brag about stuff that isn't factual it's another thing to make up stuff but we fixed all of that by making outrageous statements and merely qualifying it with the simple adverb, arguably. Arguably. And, and, and I think it was the use of that. Pe people knew 
it, it was a pointer to people that while we did take what we were doing seriously, we were happy to acknowledge where our inherent deficiencies and limitations were. And we would then, and we would, and we would celebrate that. And so it's actually a fine line you run. You see people go, you, you pointed to it many, you see people go over the top in pretending to be something they're not. We didn't pretend to be something we weren't. We just sought to amplify and perhaps celebrate more than most what we believed we were and represented. And, yep. and I think that that then created this, uh, this culture and we, we call it pocket pissing, right? But pocket pissing is just another term for, for celebrating the uniqueness um, and attributes of people um, in a way that makes everyone happy, right? Now, I think one of the, the a great example is this, is the formalization and also the, the, the celebration is the, the role of director of fashion. Uh, it's a magnificent title. Um, you've always sort of seen some uh, fantastic styles over the years as well. Can you uh, elaborate on any of the, the, some of the dedicated followers of fashion and uh, that left their mark? Chatters, I know that you were, uh, you, you, you brought some trends in, didn't you? Not sure about myself, but, um, you know, one guy that was ahead of his time was Craig Kelfer and the, uh, the bike pants. Now, back, back in the early 2000s, it was you know, unheard of to see someone running around the footy field with uh, bike pants on with footy shorts over the top. Now, you know, that's, that's standard kit attire in the AFL. Um, so, you know, that was probably the first, you know, fashion statement that really you know, struck me when I uh, came to the Vintage. How are you, Steve? Well, it's hard to top that one. I mean, uh, I mean, I think uh, Cheesy Matthews as the inaugural uh, director of fashion. I mean, he he had his sights set on on Grant Dooley with the with the denim shorts. He was never happy with with Grant Dooley in the denim shorts, and went on and on forever. I mean. Cameron Fiddler, former number one draft pick in Asia, it was pretty also notorious for his uh, ill-fitting Hawaiian shirts. And I'm trying to think, who who else have we got? I, I think and Cheesy was always always um, suggesting that Tim Hackford had his personal sponsorship with Roger David, is where he got his cheap suits from. Um, so <laughs> I was sort of a little harsh on the hack, but uh, you know, Cheesy knew his who, stuff who when it came to fashion. The safari suits, yes. Gosh, when was that? Chatty, can you remember when the safari suits were brought in? Oh. Was it 2004? Who's responsible for that abomination? I always thought it was you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. I have no remember we had the calendar. We had the Bintang's calendar made that year that we brought the, the safari suits in. But it's hard, to, it's hard to remember the safari suits. It's much easier to remember Marzio Duray's penis being slightly on display in, in the centrefold. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's a memory that'll never go away. Um, just couldn't yeah, help look, the, keep, keep looking, could you though? People still talk of this calendar. Was that the only one? I don't know why it was done as a one-off. It was uh, it was Bulldog Moran and uh, 
his wife, they put it together and it went absolutely, it, it sold like hotcakes. I mean, even though people used to love the videos, they weren't that easy to sell. The, the footy guys would, would buy them, but the general public wouldn't. But the, the calendar sold out. And we should, we definitely should have gone, gone with that again. I mean, maybe the club should look into that in the future. <laughs> I've still got mine somewhere. It'll be worth a bit now. Um, you can bring that up for uh, this year, hopefully this year when we'll be doing but you know, 25 year the, reunion. The, the, the day I did my photo shoot, I think I was with uh, Timmy Hackford and, and Ken Allen and uh, we had our safari suits on. I was working up in Aceh then after the tsunami. And so we did the photo shoot in the morning and then I just went straight to the airport and I kept it on kind of Bupati style and uh, no one looked twice at me. Everyone thought it was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. They, um, speaking with uh, some of the ex AFP uh, uh, police that were up there at the time, the, the number of times that a raid on, you know, a Jamar Islamia uh, safe house would, would occur and they'd, they'd find these centipole pictures of uh, Mar Marzio Duray um, in all his glory on the walls, um, you know. So, to some extent, we had a we had a role in um, you know fighting terrorism in, in Jakarta as well. You know, the bintangs, the, the importance of the the club just you know went went beyond our community. That's for sure. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, grand finals. Uh, you guys touched on grand finals before as well, and now. Um, of course, the one in 98 really did uh, raise, you know, well, we earned some coin for the first time and were able to really build on there. Um, guys, you've seen, a, you've been to quite a few. There have been quite a few uh, dismal acts and performances. Um, can you enlighten uh, and, and um, on any of those? I'm trying to remember. Did did Robbie did Robbie speak in number two about funny man Dave Lenny? No, please do. Right. So you know, Rob Spurs, someone I have huge respect for on, on every level. But um, I know you did touch on the fact that he he wasn't that good at sourcing entertainment for for grand final functions. So one year we brought up a, a comedian from from Australia. You should always be nervous when he's, even his website calls him funny man Dave Lenny. I mean, you shouldn't have to convince other people, right? It should just be funny. Uh, in, in fairness, he wasn't too bad, but he, he, um, so he did a little routine at the golf day. And then on, on the day itself, he, he was in trouble already because Rick Smith was the ambassador and club patron and just all around, just loved the club. Um, Rick Smith gave a little monologue for about 15 minutes and was hilarious. Like people loved him. Uh, and he was so funny and brilliant. Um, and then funny man Dave Lenny came on and uh, he's rolled out this song um, to, the, to the tune of the girl from Ipanema, but that's the girl from Indonesia. The, the main line being the girl from Indonesia needs a visa. So he's immediately just absolutely pissed off about 70% of the crowd, which is kind of Indonesian women and the kind of bully guys who've married them. Like the place has just gone stone cold quiet and you see these women looking at their husbands like, what the fuck is this? And I'm looking at Rob Spur, like he's fucked up with the Tony Lockett band of the previous one. He's, I'm looking at him, you've done it again, Robbie. <laughs> you've messed it up again. <laughs> so, I mean, the thing is, he actually had an Indonesian wife or fiance or something. So he was kind of taking the piss out of himself, but it didn't really pick the crowd that well. Um, 
funny man, Dave Lenny. Then there was uh, Romy Raphael, the hypnotist. Were, were you there then, Sean? Chatter, you must have been. No, no, I, I missed that one. So we tried to get Daddy Cabuzio, who's actually seriously good, but we couldn't afford him. <laughs> so he, he's forwarded on his mate, Romy Raphael, who in fairness has gone on to have big TV success in Indonesia because he's very, he's very good looking. Um, but he said he was going to hypnotise the whole room. I've got like 700 people at the Shangri-La. It was big. That, that was really the peak year, I think. We had, we had uh, I think the West Coast, West Coast Eagles boys were up there, Peter Matera. And he said, I'm going, I'm going to hypnotise the whole room. I mean, it had a series of obviously flawed and completely pathetic uh, attempts at magic tricks before that, that everyone was just like groaning. And he's got the huge screen. He's got this kind of spiral spinning round and round. Look, look at the spiral, look at the spiral. And like, everyone's looking at it. And you say, look at your hand. And like, look at your hand. And then he says, is it work? Is it work? It was like, well, that's not even correct English, but is what work? And then he said, thank you. I'm Romy Raphael. Good night, goodbye. And he leaves. And like, no one... <laughs> No one has been hypnotized. Absolutely no one. It was like Peter Matera and whoever the hell else was up there is like, the fuck is this guy? We're like, we don't know. We're sorry for involving you in this. Um, so, Rob, yeah, no, we had we had some disastrous uh, entertainment. And, and that's so apt. Year I got... it's, it's so apt, though, Steve-O. I mean, if, if it had worked, it wouldn't be half the story as it was that it was such a sham. I mean, so apt. And, and also, I think you're right. You know, just about everything Rob Spur does is of the highest quality, of the highest it's order, on-field, off-field. But no, he had, he had, there, there, was a special, there was a special chink in the armour there, wasn't there? No, that, that's what made it so much more enjoyable because you could just get nothing else on Robbie because he was just almost mm -hmm. perfect, you know, in every respect. But just, you know, here I am, I'm enjoying myself a lot by just getting stuck into him again because it was, it was kind of the one thing. And, that, and it really burned him up too because you know, he just didn't make mistakes like that but uh, he did on this one just just quickly before chatters um drops in those those grand final videos that rob did i i sat with him one year and did one of those the, the amount of hours that went into taking the footage and editing the footage he, he barely talked about this benny on episode two yeah, because he's such a modest, he's such a modest character. But um, the amount of time that goes into that, and the creative, uh, the creative flair and genius that guy has for for a finance manager, um, you know, for, for a director of finance of global corporations, he he is um, he's one out of the box. But I think we can't underestimate when you get. 700 people to one event and you've got all their attention and you show them this video that shows the breadth of what we do as a club um it's quite a seminal moment every year and i think again that just builds our brand it, it, it was essential in establishing our brand it differentiated what what we were as a club and and uh, it, it it showed the breadth of capability within our club and um, I, I don't think we can underestimate that. As, as much as the grand final entertainment, including the entertainment we did ourselves one year, Steve-O, which I'm not proud to reflect on, which was dancing with the dancing girls on stage. I don't know. I've tried to erase that from my memory. But no, um, I haven't. I, I reckon it was a great idea. We did it again a few years later. And it basically was the whole purpose of it was to get us 
but then we hired a, a bunch of professional female dancers. And so we'd get a choreographer and the, the only guidance given to the choreographer was needs to involve them like rubbing our chests at various points in, in the dance, which has to be said, we would rehearse for about, I don't know, about three months and be completely useless. And we'd do one dress rehearsal with the professional chicks and they would hate it. Yeah. Because they're like, why we have to rub these bloody fat blokes? But then when you got them up on stage and there's 700 people going nuts, they loved it. So then the, then the chicks are into it because they're amazingly good. So basically it was just an excuse to get slightly rubbed up and groped by attractive dancers. So I'm against you on that one, Sean. I think it was a brilliant idea. You should do it more often. Who was behind the choreography on and the idea on that one? Was that a spur um, decision or? I think it was Dave Lennon. Oh, Dave Lennon. Former MC Dave Lennon, not to be mistaken with funny man Dave Lennon, but uh, Dave Lennon for the more recent listeners, if there are any, uh, who can tolerate this appalling orgy of self-congratulation that this podcast has been so far. Uh, so Dave Lennon was was the MC for tuning in. Maybe ten years, maybe ten years of grand final functions. He used to be on Australia TV, and and, and he was the first. Uh, he was the MC for the first function together with. Uh, your good mate Nick McArdle is a, is a great man too. Uh, I think it was Dave's idea. Yeah, some good ideas too, Dave. Yeah, it was great having those guys up early um, in the piece. It it um, you know it makes a difference having a, uh, a professional actually running the proceedings to let everything else fall apart uh, around you. Well, I, I remember we went to the rugby club's two thousand two World Cup event and. Uh, I mean, they had basically tried to copy most of what we did, which was smart because we did it very well, but they, they didn't have the professional MC. They had one of their blokes MCing and by about halfway through the second half, he was completely shit-faced yeah. and it got way out of hand. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, you need, you, need a, you need a proper MC for those functions. And, you How know, about you, Chad? Your favourite grand final moment? I'm not sure it was my favourite, but 2001, um, that was actually the first the coming out in public uh, first date uh, with my now wife. Um, why on earth you would choose uh, AFL grand final function is just beyond me. And to make it worse, Patricia turned up uh, just after lunch. So by that stage, I'd probably had you know a dozen beers and about half a dozen um uh what, what was it that we used to have uh, the, the, the margarita machine margarita frozen margaritas yeah. those things are a disaster that's yeah. right you know that my beloved essendon had been beaten by brisbane um and i think i set the world record for the highest amount paid for a james heard football jumper um followed by a similar price for a Matthew Lloyd jumper. Now, I think Patricia then got the wrong idea about our financial circumstances going forward. Um, but it was interesting, a few years later, I was at a, uh, I was on my way to a wedding stop in Perth, stopped in at the OBH hotel for a few cleanses with the groom and Rick Smith and his wife, who were the, uh, was the ambassador at the time was there and Rick's wife, remembered that day and you know mentioned that she came over to try and calm me down a little bit uh, to no avail 
That's because it was the subject of a cable back to Australia, actually, um, because of all the all the potential risks uh, that, that emanated from it. The, the, that, I mean, that, the, be the best part was that Chatty was was bidding against himself for about the last I, I, five minutes on on I, both I, items. Yeah, I, I was about to say, Matt, that was a that was a a tried and well practiced habit at club football auctions, and the Rebels Cricket Club was the same. If you made the mistake of pointing out that you had a very keen interest in something, then there'd always be someone just bidding you up the entire way. And I remember because um, at the Rebels Cricket Club, um, and you know, the cricket club, very similar to the football club, Benny, we just over-celebrated, you know, very mediocre cricket, very mediocre cricket. And they had this player of the year function. And of course, in keeping with a not even third-rate um, competition. You know, we had people like Kapil Dev, Keith Stackpole, Richard Hadley, Jeff Lawson. These people are coming up and doing the, the presentations. But they had the Cricketer of the Year and the top 10 cricketers, there was a photo of each of us and a big photo. And, of course, the thing was you had to buy the photo of you in action. And I got, I got bid up to some unbelievable price by my teammates. It was just... Just crazy, but it was the same. The, the, the Bintangs were the same chatters, and they would have had you earmarked early, mate. You were never going to get out of that for less less than the mortgage of a property uh, in um, in Scarborough, mate. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's a miracle that you that you and Patricia, you know, managed to survive that first date. I'm I'm impressed actually that you pulled that off. I mean, if you talk grand final memories, it, it's probably hard to go past the Daniel Kerr room. Um, so I, I mentioned the year that the West Coast Eagles came up. So Daniel Kerr was supposed to be in among the group. We did have Peter Matera, which was pretty amazing. Like, what a player. Um, but Daniel Kerr couldn't come. I think he got punched out by Ben Cousins that week or something and, and couldn't make it. But he had a room booked at the Shangri-La. So, of course, he didn't come. But then when we'd come to settle the bill at the end of the weekend, uh, there's about $3,000 worth of drinks of Ben. <laughs> put on the Daniel Kerr room um, and I might add there's probably a few guys have, have enjoyed themselves with a few ladies in, in that room as well and so subsequently I'm sure that I'm not sure if it's continued for about the next decade every year a room was booked at the Shangri-La under the name Daniel Kerr and uh, <laughs> if anyone was uh, of need of a room for whatever purpose uh, it was available to them and uh large bar bill was 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 uh, was raised against Daniel Kerr's name. So Kerr doesn't realise, I mean, the nights the nights and the fun that he's in Jakarta without ever without ever leaving the country. <laughs> Magnificent. I forgot about that one and um, it's well worth uh, it, it the Daniel Kerr room does uh, does get raised a little bit um, and uh, I'm sure it'll be uh, that room will be uh, made available for Daniel, of course, if he if he can make it this year for the for our twenty fifth birthday celebrations. Um, look, we touched on before about the, the the growth of the club and and sponsorship was a was a big thing, wasn't it? And the money that came in and and of course we're in a different world now up here, but we had cable vision and I think that was a, a coup from Kenny Allen, wasn't it? But you had Qantas, you had a lot of these guys that came on board and, and I, yeah, I, I think Benny. Unquestionably, this was the best resourced uh, club 
uh, community club that I've ever been associated with. We, we had we had BHP, Rio, Colliers, Qantas, um, these iconic <laughs> iconic brands associated with what we did. We had we had the the support of the Australian Embassy and and um, you know between Rick, Rick, Rick Smith and I think John McCarthy might have succeeded him. I, I can't remember, but we had great support um, in relation to what we were doing. And, and I think they recognised the role we were playing as, as creating a bit of a social fabric among, amongst some people who otherwise might have been outliers within the Australian expat community. Um, but the, the resources we had were outrageous. Um, they are, of course, you know, um, appropriately spent and acquitted um, um, and uh, Shane Shane Volk Shane Volk uh, did a, a remarkable job as as the treasurer during the period I was there. Um, yeah, and, and you know we talk about some of the great people on the field in, in the previous episode. People like um, Shane Volk and Richie Rossiter, um, uh, you know that the hack these types of people. Um, they were just incredible people off the field who lived and breathed the club, even though, and they were great leaders. They had the respect of people within the community of the club. Um, so from a, from a resourcing perspective, while we had people like you know, Ken Allen and, and the hack and Rob, ANZ, ANZ was another great sponsor of ours. Um, we, we, had, we did have a stellar lineup of corporate support and certainly ample funds to go traveling pretty much wherever we wanted, whenever we wanted. Um, and, and, and to also, you know, put funds towards the development of community football in, in Indonesia and in, in Jakarta in particular. It's interesting, uh, 12 months ago, I, I had a, a hopelessly insolvent company approach me to try and find a way to raise, raise some capital. And, you know, I was just thinking back that what these guys really needed was a Ken Allen. You know, if, if Ken Allen is able to, I think it was in excess of 50,000 US dollars, if he's able to raise that for a company for a, a bunch of hack expat footballers, imagine what he could do in the corporate scene. Thanks for that, guys. Um, you, you touched on development, and I think it's a really important uh, point to... Um, to now discuss, um, of course, where we are now with the Bintangs, with um, with so many people have left, so many, you know, it's probably 15% of the expat population is actually here. Um, what was built on 15 to 20 years ago, any of those boys are, are still playing with us. You know, um, you know, we've got a couple that are now in their 30s and they're still playing, um, but that legacy has lived on. Um, so the, our core playing group are, Indonesians, and they're very much part of the Bintangs. They are our club, our fellow yep. clubmen. Um, it's a very different club now in that way, but it's it's just as important, and and it's probably one of the great legacies because without development, there'd just be a few guys just sitting around watching watching TV, trying to you know find some players. Um, Bordy was integral with it. With it. Um, I know, and Steve-O, you were, and then Chris Bandy came in a bit later. There was also um, the Boggle Flyer as well. Dave Caney came in. Um, 
Tell us a bit about the, those early days with, um, I think it was what, up, up at Bordy's place at Panchawati and... Yeah, uh, that's actually some of my fondest memories for going up to Panchawati. Um, we would usually go up to help uh, officiate the games. And, you know, one of the things that really struck me was the talent that, that existed amongst, you know, it was junior football, but, you know, these were young guys that were pretty quickly demonstrated that they knew how to mark, um, were able to do a drop punt within a matter of weeks. Um, you know, they, they really took to, to football. Um, and it's interesting, you know, culture, the cultural side passed, passed on quickly. I remember my, my first game umpiring um, and being shouted out in Indonesian, which I didn't really understand, although I did hear the word uh, putti, um, turned to Baldy and said, you know, what, what did that young kid call me? And he said, oh, it translates to white maggot, which, um, you know, I thought, oh, my God, I can't believe, you know, they've picked up on this already. But it was at the end of that game, I think uh, the Junior Football League was sponsored by a tobacco company and I think it was an under-15s game and I had to decide who was the best player and, uh, and then Baldy hands me a, uh, a carton of cigarettes to, to hand out to this 14-year-old boy who was the best player on ground. And I was horrified. Uh, I was absolutely horrified. You know, you can't be handing over cigarette, you know, you, you get fined in Australia for that sort of thing. Um, but then Baldy kind of pointed out, look, it's a bit different here. That 14-year-old kid's actually got two kids of his own and uh, just gone through a divorce. So we you know, pretty quickly realised that things are a bit different up in the hills uh, in Indonesia to, to what they were back in Australia. Gosh, I mean, it... There's a lot of great memories. Uh, you know, we took we took a bunch of the guys from Baldy's Village. Um, I mean, I'd love to talk more about this whole development issue and, and how it ended up being professionalised. But you know, so after the after the Bali bomb, um, you know, which which came after, of course, you know, back in '99 when the embassy was was being subject to to violent protests after the East Timor thing. There was a lot of stuff had gone on between Indonesia and Australia, and we, and we took a bunch of guys from from Baldy's Village to, to Bali for the Bali Bomb Memorial game, um, but you know, and they were interviewed by the by the age. So you know, what does it mean to you guys to go over for this game? They never heard of the Bali Bomb. I mean, it just just didn't occur to them in in, in their world. They're living up there in the village, didn't know that it happened. Um, you know, and those boys, I, I was, I think I was coach for that game, and and uh, we had the pre-game meeting by the pool, and like, where are the boys? Like they're still on the beach, looking at the ocean, never seen the ocean before. Um, you know, so <laughs> what Baldy did and uh, Andy Mohammadia as well had, had the stuff going on in his neighbourhood. Um, you know, there was no sustainable future in that, working with, with uh, you know, bean farmers from Bogor and, uh, you know, a bunch of kids with, with no money down in, down in uh, Depok, I think, where Andy was living. But um, it, it, was, it was a great platform in a way, and you know, and, and, and as you said, the Bogor flyer had going up at, uh, around his school in, in Bogor. Uh, it was a great platform, to, you know, for what, what's happened now. And um, you know, what I've, I've come to realise from, from, you know, from my involvement in it and then viewing it from afar, I mean, you, you can change some people's lives. Um, and, and I've been reading the articles subsequent to, 
you know, over the last couple of years that you've been sharing on, on you know, the engagement with the, with the orphanage. And honestly, I mean, literally brought, brought tears to my eyes, you know, reading about this guy saying the football clubs meant everything to him. He was completely lost as a teenager. And so it doesn't matter if, you've, if we curate good footballers or, you know, we get a, an Indonesian in the AFL. I mean, who gives a shit? But, you know, the uh, guys like Baldy and Andy and, 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 uh, and Dave Caney and then all those who come subsequently, you've, have made a contribution to helping out a certain number of people and giving them something to do. And it's been, been fantastic. And it's really, to me, it's just amazing to see that, you know, the Indonesians are, are the core of the club now. It's just, it's brilliant. Yeah, incredibly proud of it. And um, yeah, core of the club and wow, they can play footy too. They certainly can. Um, yeah, I think saw that. that we can, uh, we'll, I'd, I'd love to bring Andy on. We'll, we'll get him on. I think he treks around the world, doesn't he? He's, he's, he's uh, when we can catch him, we'd love to get him or get Boy and get a few of the other boys on as well. With, he, with he, he's in he's in Syria now, you know, but he, his whole his whole journey into humanitarian work started with the tsunami. That's right. Uh, in Aceh in, in December 20, 2004. and and um, he rang up Tim and said, "You got any bintang shirts?" And he took about six hundred shirts that Timmy had in his garage that he never knew what he was going to do. And that's he went off to Aceh. You know, took a bus and took three days to get up there. He had no job, no money, no structure there. Just like, I'm going to go and I'm going to help. And what he took was a whole bunch of Jakarta Bintang shirts. So at least uh, people who'd lost everything, at least had something to, to put on their on their back. Um, and, and, you know, and Andy now has 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 turned that into a career. He's, he's, uh, he's a highly experienced and, and competent humanitarian worker who's worked in all sorts of disaster spots all around the world. But, you know, it started with a bunch of Bintang's grand final shirts that nobody wanted. You, so, Chatty, we fixed terrorism and we, we've solved the world's disasters as well. I mean, yeah. I, I've learned a lot tonight. I didn't realise all the things we've done. You did mention, you touched on the, the Bali bombing and, and, and Sean, as you mentioned, the, the environment here has always been a little tricky uh the external environment and and of course when you, we look back on that that period it it must have really affected the club in so many ways and of course we did lose players didn't we and um in 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 the in the 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 first Bali bombing and of course the the ones here in Jakarta as well we were deeply affected um it must have had a, a huge impact on the club and and you know at the very least with with um playing personnel and, and, you know, the number of expats leaving the country and getting out, in many ways, it was a bit of a, you know, that a loss of innocence in some ways, wasn't it? Um, but looking back and thinking about the, you know, there was the, you guys toured Bali just six months after uh, the, the, that, the first bomb in, in, so it would have been, what, around May or June in 2003. And then you returned again, I think, for the, the Bali Nines in October with Prime Minister and uh, Jason McCartney and, and, and the likes uh, were all there. Um, Dermy, of course, was probably front and centre and, and um, Ron Barassi as well. And, and all of this just brings it home just the uh, sort of the, I mean, the magnitude of, the, of, that, of that time um, and the little world that we're operating in as well and, and, and making a difference within our community. Yeah, no, it, it, I think you hit the nail on the coffin there about the loss of innocence. It, um, you know, prior to then, you know, Jakarta um, and Indonesia generally was a place that 
you know, at any time of the, the day or night, you could probably walk down the street and you'd basically, there'd be interest in you. People would want to talk and laugh and joke. And, you know, we, we just never saw that, you know, that, that undertone that, that did exist. Um, and the, the Bali, Bali bombings and subsequently the, the embassy really, really, you know, rocked that. Um, but at the same time, it, it, the, the footy club was, was fantastic in that, you know, all of us had different things going through our minds and concerns and, and, and having a group that, you know, I, I think the, after the, uh, the embassy bombing, there was a whole group of us got together at a, at a pub, not, not Aphrodite, uh, I can't remember the, the pub we got, and sat down and talked about, you know, how we were feeling. It's probably one of those first, you know, men sharing their feelings um, experience that I've ever had. Um, can't say I've had too many since then either. But, um, yeah, no, it was, for me, it was a special time to be part of the Bintangs, um, you know, bringing us all together. And, and I think, I think Benny, you know, when, when you lay your roots down deep as a club, it's in tough times when the wind blows hard that you're tested, right? And to, to Chatter's point, you know, precisely the time where people need to exhibit care and love and support, it came naturally to do that, even though it's one of the most unnatural things as an Australian male <laughs> to do that. But, but as a club, you know, we'd spent uh, years celebrating the uniqueness of each other, um, you know, communicating, sometimes directly, often indirectly, you know, our care and, and love for each other and, and our mateship. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's a bond that's, that's forged when you go out to battle, right? And, and you, you go onto the football field. That, that, that really brings you even more closely together. But the way we celebrated that mateship um, and that community, um, I think it's precisely times like uh, post Bali, and we had lots of other, you know, we, we had people go through some very difficult patches and, and the club very quietly, you know, helped people out, um, helped people through. I, and I think a lot of people probably avoided really significant um, uh, risk and problems by virtue of having a place and having, having the sort of leadership we had at the club that could give you a, a sense of direction, a sense of perspective, a sense of light when around you might, everything might have seemed a bit dark. You know, I think we can't underscore that. And uh, I, know, I know we make light of a lot of these things, but um, that's the, I, I do think that there was a unique coming together of, um, of, of an incredibly high quality group of people um, at precisely the right time that's created a foundation that, you know, we're all still talking about it with incredible fondness. For people, people who are listening to this who can't see some of these stories, we're all in tears um, uh, for, for both the highs and the lows of, of this story um, with, with Muton in the background. Um, but it's, um, it's, we often talk about what we did, we don't talk about why. And I think the why, the why is something, um, because there was such a strong purpose an underlying purpose in what we did, 
that made what we did just more impactful. Um, and and you know that's why we're so delighted, Benny, that you know you're you're celebrating it, right? Um, and that's what we should be doing. Perfectly put, Sean. Um, yeah, and we we need to celebrate it. Um, the 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 club, as I've said many times, is is what it is today because of what we've been through um, and the the highs and the lows. Just moving on a little bit, we, we've touched on sponsors and a little bit of on-field, not much. Um, how about tours? Um, when the money started coming in, uh, you mentioned that you were able to tour wherever you wanted, pretty much. Um, and there were some some great trips. Uh, you did, of course, the champs were happening. You went to Bangkok, I think, and then probably KL a few times, Hong Kong. Uh, one one stands out though is the the first tour of Japan. I think around two thousand and four um, was that that was a, a a fairly big tour and a, and a and a great time for the club. Yeah, look, going going to uh, going to Japan was amazing. Uh, I mean, going to any tour. I mean, the idea that you could go on an international football tour when when you're playing with a bunch of very average footballers is already kind of preposterous. And then you know, let alone going to Japan. I, I do remember the flight there was annoying. Marzio Duray and uh, Jason Donuts Carone just spent the whole night talking, uh, yelling, drunk. Uh, the Japanese people were way too polite to tell them to shut up. Um, but, it, you know, I mean, Japan's such an amazing country. And, and, and you know, the beauty was, I think it gave us a bit of a, an idea of what you could do with the Indonesians because the Japanese guys were seriously good. They were playing against uh, some teams in Asia and then Box Hill came up for some reason. So we had that the classic clash between traditional rivals Box Hill and Osaka um, as featured in the, in the grand final video that year. Um, I mean, they were really, really good. Um, I mean, I, so I was coach in that, in that tournament, but I, you know, so I worked out very quickly that if the ball hit the deck, we were, we were dead. Extremely well drilled, very fast, uh, very athletic. Um, but I, I, I remember one game where they, we, we were a couple of goals up and then they were coming back at us. And I realized they were so drilled and so Japanese that basically at kickouts, I got Rob Spur and John White, former Sydney Swan John White, to stand on one wing and the other 16 blokes to stand on the other wing because they were just doing one-on-one. -on -one. So, so just bomb it into Rob Spur and John White who are too good for their opposition and they're going to mark it. Then your other guys stay there and then John White will go ahead and Rob Spur kick it to him. So we're just basically trying to, to make it a two-on-two -two match with keepings off between uh, Spurry and, and John White because once the ball hit the deck, we, we couldn't beat uh, the Japanese guys. They, they were too good for us. Um, and I, I must say it was the, one of the tours where we also, um, you know, because we'd flown all the way to Japan, it was a two-day tournament, which was pretty unusual. And normally we didn't drink before games because after the 99 Bali game debacle, I can't remember if you were at that one. I mean, Jesus. And it's like, let's not get ship stays before games. But on the Saturday night, we did like, fuck it, we're in Japan. Let's have some fun. And, and we, we had to play the, uh, the Japanese boys in the morning. We knew they were going to beat us. So we, we had a big night out on, in the, on the Saturday night. Um, I mean, that's the night actually Jason Carone won the, won the golden headband. I don't know, do we want to go there? We want, to, we want to go there. I, I think there's no problem at all. No, no, I mean, so we'd been out on it uh, in, the, in Narita, and Narita is not just an airport, it's a town. Um, and we'd been, we came back 
Uh, and so Jason Carone, who for, for those who don't know him, is what he's a good mate of yours, Chatty, what he's about, what, five foot one, about 150 kilos, very white pasty skin and a very high pitched voice. He was an accountant. Uh, he used to keep, he was the club treasurer. He used to keep all the receipts in a shoebox, which is concerning. Um, for reasons I still can't explain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. All you guys are doing impressive things now. The reasons I still can't explain when we got back to the hotel, uh, Jason Carone was in his underpants, standing on a chair in front of his room, and he just gathered a whole bunch of furniture outside the door. A painting easel. I don't know where he got a painting easel, a table, a couple of side tables and a couple of chairs. And he was standing on a chair on top of a table. And we're like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Why do you have all this furniture? And this guy's, don't fucking touch me. Like, we don't want to touch you. Fucking stay away from me. Get away from me. Like, we're not We're not coming near. What are you doing with all the furniture in the room? Like, just calm down, man. Why are you in your underpants? I mean, not, not an attractive sight. And he just, he's going off and off and off. And then suddenly he falls down. Ah, it broke my arm. It broke my arm. And then Dave Matthews, for some reason, gave him a wedgie and started massaging his buttocks. And he became very, I don't know why he did that either, but he became very perturbed at this point. And so the only solution I could come up with was I grabbed a, a nearby fire extinguisher and just blasted him with the foam, which it turns out I didn't know this. It filled the corridor. like. You know, I get filled this huge corridor of this hotel and then the management came and but they couldn't see us because of all the phone. So we all just scattered into the rooms, leaving half the furniture. And I, yeah, it's, it's an unusual story. But Jason Crane did win the, the golden headband for that effort. Um, and I think maybe he might have been the inaugural. Was he the inaugural winner? The golden headband for the, the stupidest act of the year? Yeah, I think, I think he was. Yeah. yeah. Did you win that one, Chatty? I mean... I don't think I did. I, it, you know, You're an obvious candidate. Yeah. Um, you know, with leaving... Not Keenan, no. Keenan was way too on top of things. Yeah. But, you know, I would have thought that having having left the footy jumpers behind at the uh, hotel in Singapore on uh, Asian Champs uh, weekend, yes. that, that deserved a uh, golden headband, I would have thought. Mm. There was another time where, where jumpers were uh, left behind. I think it was a Bali tour in about 04 or 05. Was that right? And what, you had to wear geckos yeah, so we right out or what? Well, we started off with reverse geckos. So they, the geckos gave us some of theirs and we turned them inside out. But, you know, when you're at the bottom of the pack, you know, which obviously I was a lot, and you look up, it looked, it's a little hard to distinguish. So in the end, we, they, they, they went off home and got their rugby team jumpers, the Bali chooks. So it's got like a like a yellow cotton sleeved jersey with like a, a chicken laying an egg. So we're running around in Bali chooks jumpers. I mean, it, the club was at a low point. I mean, you talk about the impact of the Bali bomb and the embassy bombing. We were very low on playing numbers and exceptionally low on talent. And uh, we had a pretty average coach too. And that 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 was the low point. And when we got flogged, we, we were wearing chicken jumpers. <laughs> no, I mean, we were a rabble. We were a total rabble. It was my last game as coach. So I, think I, I might have been sacked after that. Club in crisis. One of the other places we went was Vietnam. That was fantastic. Um, that was uh, a round-robin tournament. We played up there 
I think I don't have great memories of it because I I was concussed. And before Steve Steve Owen chatters jump in and suggest that's hard because that that involves contact with another player, Sean. It was actually a, a, a hanger that I took. I went straight over the top of the bloke and landed head first. I think Matt might remember it. Um, and so I don't remember much of Vietnam, to be honest. Um, I missed that too, actually. Um, but we, we, we did go to a lot of places, Ben, and um, uh, not always not always as decorated as as the, the Japan tour in terms of what, what everyone got up to. But they were, you know, when you go on tour, um, when you achieve success as a group, it's it's a really you know it's a really special time and they're they're very they're very fond memories post some of those Bali games and and I know I know it was commented on but it's still the single best thing I've ever been part of on a football field was Matt Quinn's five goals in a quarter in the last quarter in Bali it's the single most impressive individual performance I've seen in a game and that's having played with you know. The Tomos, the the Stevos, the Chadwicks, the Spears, the Modicas, um, you know these are all and, and Beggar, you know these are all very very good players, um, but that that was that was the best thing I've ever seen on a football field. Was that, that was the same game as the the Tomo speech at three quarters? I think it was. Um, it, it was because um, to beat Bali, to beat the Bali guys was always really, is personal, right? It was really personal. And we, we had a lot of respect for them and they were tough. And, you know, again, their lifestyle versus our lifestyle from week to week, very different. And so, so I think, um, you know, for those of us that worked indoors in an office, um, you know, 15 hour days, it was a bit of a thing to be able to go out and beat guys who were perhaps living a lifestyle more suited to uh, running around on a 35 degree day with 80% humidity um, on a dry deck. You know, everyone remembers the O2 game because of, because of uh, Bulldog Quinn's amazing feat, but, you know, we did it to him again in 03 and 04 as well. He came from behind at, at three quarter time and, and, and beat a, you know, a fitter bunch of guys. Um, yeah, they, they were three brilliant, brilliant uh, moments. I mean, yeah, Bali was always a game we wanted to win, right? Bali and Singapore, but probably probably Bali more, even more than Singapore, I reckon. Always the, the, the toughest games of the year. I mean, playing in that heat on that hard ground, um, always relatively close. And, you know, for, for two weeks after the game, you know, you'd be having pus coming out of the scabs in your knees and, oh, it was just... It was a hard game. Um, well, you, you remember the, I mean, the Bali Bali Bomb Memorial Tournament. Um, it was very embarrassing the next day. So I mean, that was a tough day of footy. We played against the Bali boys, and there were teams up from Oz. It's about thirty-eight degrees. You know, I'm playing on a slab of rock, basically, yeah. uh, which was water, you know, ba barely watered by uh, untreated sewage. So the next day, we've gone to the the, the official memorial. Um, where, where SBY, who was who was a coordinating minister at the time, not not president, gave the best speech I've seen in, in the flesh. Um, extraordinary speech. It was it was a fantastic memorial for for that event. 
but I was so beaten up from the day's footy that I was just covered in, in scratches and, and kind of pussy uh, grazes and I was limping and I was, so people started coming up, hugging me, thinking I was a bomb victim. <laughs> just like, people are coming up, I'm like, oh, seriously, I just played footy yesterday. <laughs> I'm really, I'm okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I wouldn't in any way obviously compare them, but it was tough footy when you played in Bali. God. That well, that, I, I remember that, because um, that, that was, I think, Jason McCartney, uh, that was actually his comeback game. It wasn't, uh, I remember lining up on him in, um, in Bali, and uh, it, that was, that's when it really, was driven home to me that I I had some mental issues when it came to football, um, white line fever, that basically as soon as I stepped over the line, I'm, I became a different person. Um, and I think there was some video footage made of um, Jason McCartney, you know, going to pick up the ball that, that goes over the boundary line and I've given him a big hip and shoulder to, you know, make sure he understood that he was playing against the Bintans his first game back uh, after, you know, the horrific uh, injuries he suffered. And, uh, yeah, that was probably, you know, something that drove home to me that, you know, that it's probably start time to start getting some therapy. You know, you know McCartney, um, so I, because I was coach, I put myself on him for the last minute just so I could say I played on him. Um, and then after the game, so he, he, he played his comeback game and, and retired earlier that year for North Melbourne. Um, and so he, he was sitting in our tent uh, after the game, you know, getting changed. And uh, so he, it was incredibly hot that day and, and he had like a full wetsuit type of skin on underneath the, the footy gear. And so he peeled that off and he had his ankle strapped. And when he pulled the strapping off his ankle, all the skin just peeled, like fell off his ankle. And so there's just like raw um, flesh underneath the skin that's come that's come off his body. And, and I remember I said to him when I was playing on him, how are you feeling, mate? And he's like, oh, I'm struggling a bit. And so when he, the, the skin peels off, I said to him, how on earth did you play that game for North Melbourne earlier this year, given your condition? And he just looked at me and said, I don't know. It just it, you know, it stuck with me. What a, yeah, I mean, what a... Extraordinary. Um, I mean, he is an amazing person, actually. What, a, what an amazing day that was. Mm. Um, you know, a footy club to be there. I think we lost every game. It, it certainly didn't matter at all. There were like 2,000 people there. And whilst I was no fan of his politics, it was pretty amazing to have the Prime Minister there. And he, he spoke brilliantly that day, I must concede. Um, you know, that, that, and we can talk about all the fun and the beers and the tours and everything. There's no doubt in my mind that was that was the most memorable moment. Um, and I'm really glad that we were there, you know, to say we lost we lost a player in that bomb and, and we lost players in subsequent terrorist attacks as well. Um, and you know, we, we we had to be there. And you know, I know I think my uh, that Bali bomb, we were in Bali the week before playing footy and yeah. we'd got our scheduling the other way around then. Um, you know, would have been maybe ten of us gone in, in, instead of one. Yeah, yeah, that was a that was a memorable week. I mean, the first time I've ever played a game of footy, noticing that there were uh, police snipers up on the uh, grandstand roof. 
Um, I don't know whether that was to protect us players uh, the Bintangs or, or whether it was the Prime Minister. I've seen no, it's probably, probably Craig Telfer in the bike shorts, mate. <laughs> <laughs> if he comes out with those, stake him out. There's, uh, you know, the rivalry between um, Bali and, and Jakarta is still there, of course, but, you know, it's these sort of, these sort of uh, reflection points, I think, where we, we just sort of remember how, how close the two clubs are and there's something that, that we will um, probably forever be linked as well. So we'll, we'll find it out on the field, but um, we'll always remember, uh, you know, the bigger picture as well. And I think that's the key. I, I mean, deep, deep down, we love, we love those guys. Um, and I think deep down, you know, as Sean said, we're probably a little jealous of their lifestyle. All of us sitting in in, uh, in, in at desks and in offices, and those guys who are out surfing and enjoying themselves. Maybe a little bit of the rivalry with some jealousy on our part. And I think it was touched on um, in in the previous podcast as well that you know a number of there are some very good players from from Bali in those early years as well as there are now, of course. But um, they they made up a, a fairly core part of some of those um, Asian champs winning teams as well, didn't they? Um, Yet they, well, we wouldn't we they, wouldn't have won either of them. Not a banner, not an Indonesia banner, I think, at the time as well. So it's um, yeah, it was a, yeah, we we wouldn't have won in two thousand or, or two thousand and two without the Bali boys. I think that's uh, everyone knows that Gunny and Hinchy and Scarfi and those guys. They they were they were top top players and, and really good fellas. I think um, pretty wary of time and look. I think for uh, we're going to be having a few more podcasts in this uh, celebratory year um, in the lead up to the to the grand final function, which we hope will still be happening. Um, it's been great having you on, and I think you know, starting with you, Steve, and then and then Sean, and then Chatters. Just if you could just close off with one of your lasting memories of the footy club, given uh, it's been twenty years plus since you uh, you first came to these shores, Steve. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, all I do is, is think back. Um, I guess I, I learned some good lessons there, and it, it really is that. Um, and it sound it's a cliche, but it's true. And I learned it through the Bintangs. Is that um, you, you know you get what you put in. And, and I remember when we came to the 20th anniversary in, in 2015, and, and you were there, Benny, as well. Uh, the guys who turned up, and I think we had about 40 or 50 who flew in from from different parts of the world. We're not again, not necessarily the best players. They're the ones who who put the most effort in, um, and so that's where you get the enjoyment. And, and probably my, you know, I talked a lot about what my greatest memories are because there were so many. But perhaps my greatest enjoyment would be sitting around at the end of a grand final day and just seeing that room and seeing a whole lot of happy faces, and realizing that all the time and effort you put in has, has made some people happy, or, or or people coming up saying. You know, I've been in Jakarta three years and I really struggled. And the thing that, that kept me going was, was the footy club and, and, the, and the friendships. So they're the memories that stick with me. Um, it's not the, none of them are on the field, you know, because I love playing footy as well. Um, but the ability to, to do something that, that, that helped other people and made other people feel good. Um, you know, I think we all got a lot out of that as well. And that, that's what I recall. And that's why it's so special. That's why, I mean, to me, it's one of the most important um, you know, so you know, uh, groups of people that I've been associated with in my life for that reason. That, that's really hard to follow because it's 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 a really good summary, Steve-O. And I, I think what stands out for me 
is uh, the caliber of the people that um, I was associating with and the the incredible uh, euphoria that came with the success that we achieved on and off the field. These have become lifelong lessons. Matt, Matt made the observation earlier that, you know, a lot of these people that we, that we grew up with uh, and literally grew up, because that was a period where while we, we had plenty of fun, uh, you had to grow up because what was going on in the world around us. And um, it's, it's, it's unsurprising to me that with mentors like, um, you know, Thompson and Hackford and examples, you know, like, like um, you know, Matt and Chatters and Rob Spur, um, th these sorts of people, um, they, they do leave an indelible mark on you and um, they're unquestionably some of the highest caliber people I've ever worked with. And I mean, worked, worked on a project with, and you learn from all of that and you carry it with you. And I think the thing that I reflect on most is we built something and we, it's part of us and we're part of it. And that continues to this very day. I've drifted in and out of plenty of other clubs, but the relationships um, that were formed in that time are just long lasting because they're so, they're so much part of who I am. That's the profound influence. Um, and, and those people helped me create my identity. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm forever grateful to, to those people and many, who, many of whom I haven't mentioned because we just can't fit them all in. But, you know, it was a great learning. It was a great learning experience. And I'm, I think I agree with Matt. I think while I personally gained a lot out of it, I'd like to think that what I contributed also gave a lot of other people a lot of happiness and, um, and, and, and continues to do so. Thank you, Sean. Chatters. Well, even more difficult to uh, to follow both of those responses. Look, 100% agree that, um, you know, that the club had a huge impact on on you know my my development um, and uh, you know, fond, probably one of my fondest memories, which I'll sign off on, is. Uh, you know, sitting in the pool at the uh, coup to see you after uh, after a barley game, you know, for two to three hours, you know, 30 guys drinking bintang, no one leaving the pool um, for a few hours. That's one of my fondest memories, just the, the camaraderie and uh, the, the increasing temperature of the pool. Raising, raising water levels and, and cheeseburgers, no doubt. Um, what a perfect way to finish. Yeah. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Um, it, it's, it's been a pleasure uh, hearing and, and, and sharing these memories with you. Uh, and I'm sure uh, many thousands of listeners will, uh, will feel the same. Um, it'll be great to have you on some future podcasts as well. Thank you once again. And to the listeners, we'll, uh, you stay tuned for episode four. We've got some uh, stars joining us on that one as well. Thank you and uh, out for now. Bye all.
Jakarta is the team that beat Clinton, you and me. Hey!